is she? Shana, the Jungle Queen. Hello, I'm Mark Sweeney, and this is episode 17 of Shanna Showcase, a podcast devoted to indexing the significant solo appearances of Marvel Comics' greatest Jungle Queen, Shanna the She-Devil. By significant solo appearances, I mean to say that this podcast is at least 75% Khazar-free, and uh, in my mind, that's a, that's a good thing. So this time out, I'll be finishing up coverage of Shanna's four-part serial from the last days of the anthology title Marvel Fanfare. This is a story 13 years in the making. Last episode, I recapped chapters 1 and 2, so this time out, I'll take a look at the concluding chapters 3 and 4. Chapter 3 in Marvel Fanfare issue number 58. It's a story called The Political Animal. It's written by Steve Gerber. And uh, this was the last of the scripts in the serial that Gerber wrote back in the late 70s. The concluding chapter was, at the time, newly commissioned by editor Al Milgram. This chapter, chapter 3, was illustrated at some point, in the early 80s maybe, by uh, Brett Blevins, lettered by Jim Novak, colored by Steve Bucciolato, and the cover is by Joe Chiodo. Now, Chodo repeats the pattern here of the previous two issues, where this cover is painted in a more traditional, classical style, lots of shadow, uh, but the image of Shanna struggling with some jungle vines, while a large lion head looks on in the background, done in a more or less photorealistic style. The cover of the next issue, which I'll discuss soon, is a little, little more stylized. This story opens in a very unusual manner. It opens with a six-page struggle between Shanna and her pet python, Ananta. Now, what could be a relatively boring scene, uh, the snake spends several panels basically just choking the life out of Shanna. It really isn't, as first, it's rendered in a fairly dynamic way by Blevins. What are really static panels don't seem that way, with the interesting postures and poses that Levins gives Shanna and the snake. It's a good mix of mini chases, shots in silhouette to keep things interesting, and a good balance of medium shots and extreme close-ups, which really heighten the claustrophobic feeling of a squeezing snake body. And the caption boxes accompanying the struggle give some insight into Shanna's state of mind, such as it is. This confrontation is really just a distraction. It gives Shanna time to reflect on the recent goings-on, her blackouts, her regular therapy appointments, not to mention the, the matter of the Pride, a group of lion people that had contacted her and a trio of Hollywood types to commit murders for them in exchange for things like career advancement or promising personal insight. This little activity is cut short by a ring of the doorbell. It's Chris and Dina, Shanna's embryonic supporting cast, there to waste more of her time and ask for a few lessons in self-defense. Shanna asks for some time to think this possibility over and gets a call from Dr. Betts, her analyst. Dr. Betts wants to let Shanna know she heard the news of her stopping the murder of Ginny Jenkins by fellow TV writer Martin Friend who we saw last time out was one of those contacted by the Pride to commit murder. At the risk of sounding crazy to her therapist, Shanna confesses her hypothesis to Dr. Betts. She doesn't think she prevented the murder at all. 
Shanna thinks Friend did kill Ginny Jenkins and that her body is now being used to house one of the members of the Pride. We next check in with another member of the Pride, a hulking brown beefcake with a, a lion head, flowing mane. He's coaching up Slam Sanders, a former Saturday morning cowboy star with political aspirations. As I mentioned last episode, Slam Sanders in his get-up and color scheme resembles DC cowboy hero Greg Saunders, the vigilante, were he to age into a miserable old owl hoot. Sanders's murder target is to be print porn tycoon Roland Vargas, with whom uh, Sanders has arranged a public debate. As Sanders has no plans to be a hands-on type murderer, he has the Pride member, in the visible guise of an aide, personally invite a young Mr. Hernandez and his mother to the debate. And as Sanders and the Pride lion pull away from the Hernandez residence at a limo, the cowboy explains that the kid has a rap sheet a mile long and a serious grudge against Fargus. The Hernandez sister had apparently posed nude in one of Fargus's rags and caused much shame for the family. According to Sanders, Fargus is a dead man. Inviting herself to the debate later in the week, Shanna, who found out about the event from her therapist, plans on doing her best to avoid another murder and put a stop to the Pride's mysterious plan. Shanna, seated with Dr. Betts right behind the Hernandez family, catches a glimpse just before the debate starts of Sanders and the large lion man waiting in the wings. The lion is completely invisible to Dr. Betts, and Shanna, as she does, takes matters into her own hands and leaps backstage to confront the lion. As the debate starts, Shanna and the lion face off, grappling, and interestingly, and politely, they speak in whispers. The lion says it's too late for Shanna to prevent Fargus's murder. And besides, if the Pride had any thought that Shanna would, or could, prevent their plans, they would have killed her by now, which... I have my doubts, and apart from a few mind tricks, the Pride haven't been able to do much without others acting on their behalf. So I say, don't believe him, Shanna. The lion tosses the she-devil aside, while back out front, Fargus begins to speak his piece, but he's suddenly shot down by young Mr. Hernandez, who speaks rather calmly, no exclamation points or anything, saying... Fargus had ruined his sister. From the stage, Sanders publicly decries the shooting as the, I guess, still invisible Pride member races toward Fargus's body. Shanna witnesses this, and in the dark of the backstage area, teeth gritted, she rips off her dress, revealing her, her business outfit, you know, the leopard skin bikini. She witnessed the shooting, a bullet right through the heart, she says, and Fargus's collapse, but she's still momentarily stunned when Fargus gets up, shirt-bloodied, and wants to continue the debate. Shanna realizes what's happened, or at least thinks she does. The corpse has been animated by the spirit of the Lion Man. She tells herself in the last panel of the story, looking as wild as ever, knife in hand, that she must know whether Fargus can cheat death a second time, she has no choice but to kill him again. This is, of course, concluded in the next issue. 
So I think this chapter and uh, the preceding one, basically the Brett Blevins drawn chapters are the, the strongest of this story. From a narrative perspective, the threat of the pride, their ultimate goal, it's still unknown, it's still open-ended. And there's a mysteriousness that Steve Gerber has weaved here that makes the story compelling. What are they up to? The pride has inspired the most brutal murder possible in the previous chapter, a victim being bludgeoned to death, while here the pride inspires, encourages a more manipulative, less direct murder plot. And this ability to appeal to such a wide range of human psychology, from the base to the more calculated, uh, means Gerber has given us a threat to be taken seriously. The artwork here in Chapter 2 rises above the murky mess of the Carmine Infantino Blevins team of the first chapter. Sure, Blevins knows his way around the female form, and he lets you know it, especially in the scenes with Shanna and her beach bunny wannabe hangers-on. But uh, in other scenes, like the conversation between Sanders and his pride rep and the backstage fight, uh, prove that Blevins is equally capable of setting a mood, letting a certain chiaroscuro, successfully high contrast to what is really a very dark story. And I think does a great job of bringing to life the psychological and physical struggles outlined in the script. Chapters 2 and 3 are definitely the pick of the run. Uh, but where does the story go from here? Can a 13-year hiatus between written chapters be any good for this Shanna tale? We'll find out next. Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. The last son of Krypton is now the Man of Steel. Superman! To best be in a position to use his amazing powers in the never-ending battle for truth and justice, Superman has assumed the disguise of Clark Kent, a mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper. Solomon's wisdom, Hercules' strength, Atlas' stamina, Zeus' power, Achilles' courage, Mercury's speed. Orphaned as a child, the young boy, Billy Batson, possessing bravery and a pureness of heart unparalleled, is transformed to the world's mightiest mortal, Captain Marvel, simply by exclaiming the name of the great and powerful wizard, Shazam! This is the Superman and Captain Marvel Power Hour Podcast. Okay, important announcement time, folks. This morning I sat down to upload the latest episode of my Superman and Captain Marvel Power Hour podcast, which has been on its own feed, and I discovered that there was an issue with the feed. So after trying to sort through the mess for over an hour, I said, you know what, screw this. I already have another feed that works just swell as is, so I'm going to cancel this messed up feed and add the Superman and Captain Marvel Power Hour podcast to my King Size Comics Giant Size Fun podcast feed. So you'll still get the same mediocre podcast with very limited editing, and irregular show releases that you're used to from me, you know, your host Kyle Benning, and you'll still get to listen to me ramble on and on about my love of Superman and the original Captain Marvel, my two favorite DC characters. But now, the show will be part of the King Size Comics Giant Size Fun podcast feed. The show is available on iTunes, or you can download directly by visiting either www.kingsizecomicsgiantsizefun.blogspot.com or www supermancaptainmarvel.blogspot.com Now all the past episodes have now been uploaded on the King Size Comics Giant Size Fun podcast feed on iTunes and all of the old episode postings on the Superman and Captain Marvel Power Hour blog have been updated with new show links as well. 
So, I hope you'll continue to follow me in the adventures of Superman and Captain Marvel, now part of the King Size Comics Giant Size Fun podcast feed. Shazam! So in Marvel Fanfare number 59, cover dated October 1991, we find the last chapter of this Shanna story called Death Imitates Life. It's illustrated by Tony DeZuniga, no stranger to Shanna, having done the beautifully illustrated Shanna story in the back of the black and white magazine Rampaging Hulk, issue number nine, published in the late 70s. Probably from around the time that the first three chapters of this serial were written. You can find my coverage of that story in Shanna Showcase episode number 10. This story is lettered by Jade Mady and Jim Massara, colored by Bob Sharon and edited by Al Milgram. The painted Joe Chodo cover is done in the more pop-slash-airbrushed style, uh, brighter and exaggerated, especially in Shanna's facial features as she slinks across a jungle tree trunk. Script by Steve Gerber was finished 13 years after the previous three chapters, and as Gerber admits in a last-page caption box, whether this ending has any resemblance to what he had originally intended back in 78, well, that's anyone's guess. <laughs> we open up on the debate stage. Shanna swings in from stage left, ready to plunge a knife into the heart of the possessed body of pornographer Roland Fargus. Convinced that the only way to stop the pride is to kill again the host bodies of their possessing spirits. But uh, we don't find out if her plan would work because Fargus, or the thing that was Fargus, grabs her striking arm and this mere touch sends Shanna to a strange mental realm called the Jungle of the Mind. The touch of another member of the pride had sent her here before in the first chapter. This trip to the Jungle of the Mine has a different effect on Shanna, though, than the first time around. She finds herself in this strange, decaying jungle with headless giraffes and other animals in varying states of decomposition, and then suddenly various figures from her past, the people around her that have died, claw themselves out of the ground. Her mother, her father, her friend Jakuna Singh, agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., and uh, Game Warden Patrick McShane. I haven't thought of him in ages. Shanna's own Steve Trevor, but much less competent. These figures grope at her and claw at her. It's like, it's like the thriller video. She lashes out at them with her knife, decapitating them and hating herself for it as she feels some, some considerable guilt already for their deaths. And then the final insult is her dead, precious leopard friends, Ina and Beery, pounce and overwhelm Shanna as a voice tells her, you're dying, you're dead. This is probably the highlight of the story, the kind of creepiness that Dezuniga uh, was so good at illustrating. Overall, and uh, I'll probably bring this up a little later, this is, this is not Dezuniga at his best. Works a little sloppy and maybe a little underdone at some points some points unrecognizable as as Tony Dezuniga. But this dream sequence slash mental breakdown was, was more in line with what I'd expect from that artist. And I have to say that it, uh, it doesn't happen often for most artists, but I, I think the slick paper actually works against Tony Dezuniga. I think his style kind of lends itself to the gritty newsprint and uh, makes his 
work on things like Jonah Hex and the work he did for some of DC's horror anthologies just just seemed to suit his art better. Anyway, as with the last time she was sent to the jungle of the mind, Shanna finds herself gaining consciousness in a hospital bed. She was brought to the hospital by Dr. Betts, and from the doctor's perspective, Shanna attacked Fargus and then immediately collapsed, screeching and writhing. And now she's hospitalized, being kept under observation. So at this point, we get to check in with the last of the trio of potential murderers, Kinsey Gardner, a television executive whose career has stalled. He's taken a meeting with Mel Bogowitz, a washed-up writer who is apparently Kinsey's intended victim. In on the meeting, at least as an observer, is a member of the Pride, obviously invisible to Bogowitz. The appearance of this member of the Pride is inconsistent with what we've seen before in all the previous chapters. There, there have been three members we've seen. A leader with a black body and a white lion head. The big brown bruiser we've just seen in the previous chapter. And then a lioness who was present at the first murder. The lion here appears to be male, has a male's physique, but uh, it's brown. He's brown in color and he has no mane. My assumption is that it would or should be the white-headed, white-maned lion present here. So I'm not sure if this is an oversight by Gerber or Dezuniga, or if this is supposed to be some as-yet-unseen member of the Pride. Uh, the way this story is about to go wouldn't surprise me if all of the above were true. <laughs> anyway, Kinsey gives Bogowitz a kind of uh, a pep talk about his work and his career, but uh, then he gives the normally dry Bogowitz three scotches and sends him on his way. He tells the lion that he'd, he'd better get a move on, as in Bogowitz's current state, Kinsey wouldn't expect him to make it out of the parking lot. And true to this prediction, Bogowitz slams through guard's gate right into traffic, we see the lion materialize in Bogowitz's passenger seat just as the car collides with the corner of a building and bursts into flame. Onlookers are then shocked to see Mel Bogowitz emerge, seemingly unharmed, from the flaming vehicle. So here we have another indirect murder. The character of Mel Bogowitz as a failed writer is, to me, a little too close to that of one of the other murderers, Martin Friendly. This whole scenario seems a little tacked on by Gerber here, a little rushed. And uh, maybe he could have found a more unique situation and victim for Kinsey. I'm sure Hollywood is full of a wide range of varied victims in various professions. Uh, Mel Bogowitz, as a washed-up writer, just seems like a little lapse in imagination on Gerber's part. And now, I'll be honest with you, from here on out, I don't have a, a very firm grasp about what is exactly going on. Uh, I'm going to go into straight reporting the facts mode here. Shanna, in her hospital bed, seems to be experiencing some echo-like dreams from her time in the, in the jungle of the mind. She sees her mother murdered and then morphed into a lion. Dr. Betts is in the room with her as Shanna tumbles out of the bed. And then suddenly in the room with them are the three murder victims, Jenny Jenkins, Roland Fargus, and Mel Bogowitz, dressed in some Hollywood's idea of ancient Egypt-like clothing. And housing the spirits of the pride, they warn Dr. Betts to leave the groggy Shanna alone, 
to let the process take its course, or they'll be forced to kill her. They completely baffled Dr. Betts is told that they have been through this ordeal with Shanna many times over the centuries, that out of her suffering comes power from her death, rebirth, from the way their voices trail off, I suppose we're to assume that they fade away, although it's unclear in the, in the artwork. From the hospital room, we're taken next to the giant temple-like mansion owned by Roland Fargus, where the wheelchair-bound Ginny Jenkins greets a group of women, actresses maybe, or writers from Ginny's show. We're not, we're not told for sure. They're taken to a giant lion statue flanked by smoking braziers. Real Raiders of the Lost Ark type stuff here. Where Ginny seems to be talking about research for the TV show. She's the head writer of a women's clinic comedy. But then her topic strangely segues into human sacrifice. We then transition back to the hospital where Dr. Betts, without referencing the three threatening people just in the room, She's pumping Shanna about her dream. Shanna talks about the she-devil inside her, something old, ancient, about her struggle with disgust for... She has trouble finishing her thought, but when pressed, she says, her disgust for people. It's people. She feels something destructive inside her, something powerful that will blanket the world in flames. And when this is challenged by Dr. Betts, Shanna's head is replaced by the white-headed member of the Pride, telling her to let Shanna die. Let her be what she was meant to be. As Shanna's body storms out of the room. I'm not sure I like where this is going. I'm not sure I like what Gerber is telling us about the, the constantly warring aspects of Shanna's personality. The struggle between the, the tame and the wild. But I'll get to that shortly. As Shanna makes her way from the hospital and toward her destination, the mansion, those gathered there at the mansion can sense it. When she arrives, she seems completely possessed now and recognizes the members of the Pride in their new bodies. She calls them by their titles, my priestess, my sorcerer, my slave. She is a member of the Pride. She's their goddess now. She says that it was a, a struggle to subvert Shanna, but now Shanna has surrendered, and we see visualized an internal conversation between Shanna and the lion goddess, where, where we see maybe Shanna is having second thoughts about allowing herself to be consumed this way. Now at this gathering, this little gathering at the mansion, there is to be a sacrifice, and he who was Melbaguet says that her slave, I'm assuming the big brown lion in the body of Roland Fargus, has built this temple. The priestess, in the guise of Ginny Jenkins, has provided the sacrifice. And we do see in the background that group of girls from the TV show that was visiting the mansion. I guess they seem a little too complacent, I say, dressed in appropriate sacrificial clothing. And Mel Bogowitz's contribution... He presents Shanna slash the Lion Goddess with a ceremonial dagger, which he states was a prop on Bogowitz's short-lived TV show, Me and the Barbarian. Now, I'm sorry, if this is the only reason that Bogowitz was chosen as a murder victim to get this dagger, 
then I say that's not good enough. It's pretty weak. In fact, I don't think any of these victims, these murder victims, were chosen for a good enough reason. It could have been any space for a sacrifice, for sacrificial purposes. And the victims, these sacrificial victims, these group of women, it could have come from anywhere. This thin thread may have been a casualty of a 13-year lag in storytelling. I just hope there was a more compelling reason to have friend Sanders and Kinsey, who are now completely forgotten about, kill their particular victims in, in Gerber's original lost draft. And so the sacrificial procedure, we're told, as Shanna slash the lion goddess recalls it, is to slit the throats of the hostages, then plunge the dagger directly into herself, which she proceeds to do. But at the last second, the previously subsumed Shanna box reasserting herself. And though she has a great line here, I'm a pragmatist, not a dreamer. It's entirely unclear from the art what exactly happens. She plunges the dagger into a portal with an image of the lion goddess, yet Shanna is dressed in her leopard skins rather than the ceremonial outfit she was just in, which leads me to believe that this last act may be happening in her mind, but I don't know. <laughs> Next thing we know, the big lion statue's chest explodes, as do the chests of Bogowitz, Fargus, and Jenny Jenkins. Uh, the fates of the sacrificial hostages, unknown. The fates of the three murderers, well, that comes on the next page. Just want to wipe my hands of the last couple pages. Shanna's all better. She is serving coffee to Dr. Betts, perhaps in Shanna's home, for the debriefing. <laughs> And Shanna comments on the irony of the pride, perhaps delivering on their promises to the three murderers. Martin Friend got his literary notoriety. She says getting a free membership in the Book of the Month Club. I don't... I don't get that joke. Uh, Slam Sanders gained notoriety when a bank he owned a part of failed. And Kinsey Gardner, whose wish was a little unclear to me from the beginning suffered a skiing accident and is now paralyzed from the neck down. Not a satisfying wrap-up <laughs> for me. For Shanna's part, she's physically exhausted and is unsure about the, the nature of the wild part of her personality. She seems to accept that it was the lion goddess all along. This wild nature may not have left her completely when the goddess died. If the goddess died... Dr. Betts keeps it nice and ambiguous, saying the goddess may have just been tapping into something that was part of Shanna to begin with. Which is what I will continue to believe is what happened. And uh, gives her best medical advice. A prescription for some much-needed rest. Shanna agrees, and on the last splash page we see Shanna catching some Z's in the constrictive coils of Ananta the Python. So I consider this a bit of a disappointing finale to this Shanna adventure. Unclear storytelling, half-baked plot threads that didn't live up to the promise of the, of the middle two chapters, and an artist not operating at the peak of his powers. It's not my favorite Shanna story. And going over it makes me think that I should have covered the backup story in this issue, which, rare for Marvel fanfare, may have actually been better than the lead 
It's a uh, Patsy Walker, Damon Hellstrom story by Richard Howell, done in the style of a Simon and Kirby romance comic. Very entertaining, despite me having no prior relationship with either of these characters. Uh, but the Shanna story, I think my biggest problem with it is uh, how it undercuts what I've always found to be Shanna's most interesting characteristic, the, the warring aspects of her personality, the psychological struggle between the, the civilized and the, the wild that she's experienced since, well, since she was first introduced. The merest suggestion that it was the result of possession by some random lion goddess makes it so much less interesting to me. I think Steve Gerber's best scripts, his best Shanna scripts anyway, have a sort of psychological edge that ground them in the real world and are in a real woman's psyche, despite the variety of baboon men and evil cults that Shanna's dealt with over the years. And this possession angle, which I I do admit isn't completely owned by the story, there's some wiggle room at the end with the ever-pragmatic Dr. Betts hinting that Shanna's wild nature was always a part of her. Uh, but just the suggestion that there may have been some supernatural influence on Ms. O'Hara's fascinating nature was enough to sink this story for me. But not necessarily the entire serial. I feel that, uh, especially those middle two chapters, as I said, illustrated by Brett Blevins, Gerber writing Shanna while she was fresh in his mind, there was enough there, at least in my opinion, to demonstrate that Shanna has some viability as a, as a solo star. I'll be putting some of that Brett Blevins artwork up on my blog, imthegun.blogspot.com, along with, along with some okay Tony DeZuniga stuff. There you'll find some contact info in case you're interested in getting in touch with me. Uh, I do want to give a shout out to those who helped promote the last episode of Shanna Showcase on Twitter. Carl Disley, Joseph Crawford of the wonderful Tumblr for the non-discerning reader, Steve Sellers at Shadewing on Twitter, podcast pals Darren and Ruth Sutherland, and uh, Greg Arujo. Thank you, folks. A special thank you to Greg, who helped point out Steve Gerber's Hollywood work, especially in animation, as a writer of animated series like Thunder the Barbarian, Superman the Animated Series, G.I. Joe, and some others. I had suggested last episode that it seemed like the story had to have been written by a, a Hollywood insider, with its depiction of the various shady characters and some of the situations that bordered on satire of the industry. For that episode, my extensive research into Gerber's Hollywood career included a glance at his Wikipedia page, which didn't turn up much, so uh, thanks again to Greg for digging a little deeper. And as always, a big thanks to you for listening to this stuff. Okay, I think that will do it for this episode, so till next time, see you on the savannah.